Hey, this is Lee Snow. I'm the preacher of Orange Springs Road Church of Christ, and this is our podcast. I wanted to thank you for downloading today. I hope it inspires you. I hope it builds your faith. I hope it gives you a perspective to see what God wants to do in your life. And I hope it challenges you to a faithful tomorrow. All right, this afternoon is the first Sunday of the month, which means it is our normal Q&A time. So we've got three questions that we're uh, given this week, or this month rather. Um, One of them was asked online. The rest were asked in person, or in the the Q&A box, rather. So let's just dive right into it, okay? Turn to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus Chapter 12, we're going to be looking at verse number 15, Exodus 12, verse 15. All right, so the question is this, why do we take of unleavened bread, what does it represent, and why? This is a two-part question. Number one, why do we eat unleavened bread? Number, well, it's really a three-part question. One, why do we eat unleavened bread? Number two, Why? Um, What does it represent and why? And then number three is another question. Is there more more than one fruit of the vine? All right, so let's just start off with the unleavened bread first. Why, during the Lord's Supper, do we eat unleavened bread? It's this stuff. It, um, okay, let's be honest with ourselves. It is a cracker. It is okay to call it a cracker. However, we remember what it's for, which we'll talk about in just a second, but it's a cracker. Why do we eat bread, a cracker, that is unleavened? Why can't we have one of those, uh, what are the things called that they sell in like the Hawaiian rolls? You know what I'm talking about? Why can't we have one of those on Lord's Supper? The reason is because of Exodus chapter 12, verse 15. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Now, I will readily admit that in the New Testament, the bread that is taken of the Lord's Supper is not said to have been unsalted. It is unleavened. Okay? It's two different things. Now, why do we usually, I say usually because when people make it, they make it different ways. You can buy it in different formats. You can buy what I call the little chiclets. You know what I'm talking about? The little bitty pieces. They look, they look like chiclets, okay? I don't think chiclets are even a thing anymore. But the little chiclets, or you, we make the round pieces that everyone breaks off of. Why do we choose to make those out of... Um, out of non-leavened bread. The reason is because when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, it was during the Passover, the time when Jesus and the rest of the Jews would have not eaten leavened bread. So, there's no reasoning in the New Testament why we don't eat leavened bread. It just says that it was unleavened. Because that's what they would have been eating. And As Christians in 2018, we try to live by the same way that the Christians in 29 AD lived. 
We try to worship like they worship. We try to believe like they believed and so forth. And so we take unleavened bread because that's what they would have taken. Why did God choose unleavened bread? Well, it's, it's pretty simple. Leaven is a picture in the Old Testament of sin because... Um, Y'all, y'all have heard me say numerous times that you never become unfaithful overnight, right? It's, it's a gradual pro- production in your life. It's a gradual process in your life that takes you from a faithful child of God to a non-faithful child of God. Well, that's the picture of leaven. You get a little sin, and sin compounds on itself. Um, those of you who have, have made bread before uh, understand this. If you have never made bread, this question was asked by uh, one of our younger people. If you've never made bread, you take yeast or you take some sort of leavening agent, you put a little bit in there, and it spreads to the rest of the dough, and it makes gases in the dough. And it's just a picture of sin. There's nothing sinful about leaven. You can have Hawaiian yeast rolls as much as you want, as long as you're like on the keto diet or something. Then you can't have it. But you can have leaven as much as you want outside of the Lord's Supper. The reason why God chose unleavened bread is so that it's a picture of the sin. We don't have sin in us when we're taking the Lord's Supper because we've been forgiven of our sins. And so we take the Lord's Supper of unleavened bread. <clears throat> in fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. You are really, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Our, our Lord's Supper is a remembrance of Jesus' death, but it's also a remembrance of the Passover. It reminds us of, of what God has done throughout mankind's history, not just at the crucifixion. Now that is the culmination of it. But that, it reminds us of many different things other than that as well. Next question. Is there more than one fruit of the vine? Now, as far as I can tell, this question was asked before we went to camp last week or last month. However, at camp, we had a question that kind of adds to this. Okay, so I'm going to plug that question in here. What happens? Are you ready for this? Uh, This is a question. We played stump the preacher at, at camp this year. Natalie knows the question I'm talking about. What happens when you're allergic to one of the parts of the Lord's Supper? And I thought, man, we're talking about gluten-free at camp. No. This is an actual instance by an actual friend of ours whose child is allergic to grape juice. Allergic to grape juice. Not like, you know, just like most people are gluten-free. There are some people who actually have celiac disease. But um, no, this is, she is allergic to grape juice. And so the question was, when she gets old enough to take the Lord's Supper... What do we do? How, do? how do we... She can't drink grape juice. What do we do? So here's the best answer I've, I was able to give. The Bible calls it the fruit of the vine. This question that was asked last month, is there more than one type of fruit of the vine? The reason why we use grape juice is twofold. Number one, just like unleavened bread, they would have had grape juice. Okay? They didn't grow any other types of fruit that grew on vines in, the, in, that, in that area, in that time period. So that's one reason why we use grape juice. Number two is the color. The color. It's red, right? We use red grape juice to signify the red blood of Jesus Christ. So here's what, here's the best we could come up with. I got every preacher at camp that week to 
team up and try to figure this out, all right? The Bible says fruit of the vine. There are other types of fruit of the vine. Any fruit that grows on a vine is the fruit of the vine. The reason why they used grape juice is because that's what they had available to them and because of the color. And so someone said, well, why don't we just suggest that they take and that they drink white grape juice? And I said, well, here's the problem with that. It takes away the color, which is part of the, part of the symbolism of the Lord's Supper. So there are other fruits of the vine. Um, in that case, if you're allergic to it, we suggested you drink one of the other fruits of the vine that is red, just so that you keep the same color, you keep the same consistency. Are there other types of fruit of the vine? Well, yes. Should they be used on the Lord's Supper? No. Barring extenuating circumstances, right? Um, the vast majority, now that we're away from camp and I have internet service, I looked it up. Um, it is something like less than 1% of the human population is allergic to grape juice, okay? So this is not a question of the majority of people by any stretch of the imagination. Um, in those rare instances that would be permissible, as far as uh, we can tell, to, um, to take some other type of fruit of the vine. So yeah, there are different types. Uh, one that was suggested at camp was watermelon juice. Uh, but there are other types as well. So, All right, question number two. Turn to Matthew chapter 19 and put your ribbon there. Matthew chapter 19. Put your ribbon in Matthew 19. And then turn to Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2. This question is, can you explain Matthew 19 and whether divorce for any reason, any cause, is a sin? The reason why, first off, anytime you have a teaching, it is best to go back to the origination of the teaching. Um, it, the illustration I always use is uh, the sinner's prayer. Once you realize why the sinner's prayer came about, you can realize just how wrong it actually is. The fact that it was made for a person who was doing campaigns who wanted thousands of people to be uh, saved, quote-unquote, at those campaigns. And so he came up with a different way to do it. His name was Billy Smith. He was the teacher of a man named Billy Graham who did campaigns. Billy Smith did as well. And so Billy Smith needed a lot of people to be saved at his campaigns. He came up with a sinner's prayer. That's the first time that it was ever taught publicly was Billy Smith. Then later on, Billy Graham took it up and so forth. Now, same way with this. Um, is divorce for any reason a sin? Matthew, Malachi, sorry, chapter 2, verse 16. This is where this comes from. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. You may have noticed that my translation does not include the words, for God hates the putting away. Just raise your hand if your translation has that in that verse. For God hates the putting away. Yeah, King James should have it. Um, some of the other older translations should have it. The reason why it's not in there in the ESV that I just read is because it was most likely a marginal note that got added into the text along the way. There are a couple of instances where that happens. 
But the oldest, most reliable manuscripts do not have that phrase in it. Okay, so Malachi chapter 2. That's the origination of the idea that sin, uh, divorce for any reason is a sin. Now, let's look to Matthew chapter 19 to see whether or not that is the case. Before we get there, let me read verse 15 of of, uh, Malachi. Malachi 2 verse 15. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. The context of Malachi chapter 2 is a man who... Uh, the, the modern vernacular is unreconcilable differences. He divorces his wife for unreconcilable differences. There's no sin uh, involved in that relationship. But as one New Testament teacher uh, during the New Testament times, he's not an inspired man, but as one man in the New Testament times taught, you can divorce your wife for burning the bread. He actually literally did that. He divorced his wife for burning the bread. Malachi chapter 2 is talking about the man who just divorces his wife because he wants to. Because it didn't work out. Unreconcilable differences. However you want to phrase that sentence. That's the phrase, that's the, the verse that comes from uh, that this idea of divorce being a sin in every single case comes from. Now let's go to Matthew chapter 19 and see what Jesus Christ said about it in the Christian age. Matthew 19 verse 8, he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. So I tell you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. This verse doesn't really speak to whether or not divorce is sinful. It talks about divorce and remarriage. If you divorce someone for a cause other than adultery and you are remarried, then you are in sin. Here's the, here's the problem with this idea that divorce for any reason is a sin. Um, there's, there's a couple problems. But here's the number one reason. Just take, for instance, the adulterer who is not allowed to be remarried but does so. He is living in sin. We use that phrase living in sin because of this. Every time he puts his wedding ring on, He just sinned. Every time he introduces her as his wife, he has just sinned. Every time he thinks about her as his wife, he just sinned. Every time they they form that union physically, they have sinned. Every time they eat dinner together as husband and wife, they have sinned. They are living in sin because their lives are sinful. Okay? The only way to repent of that, then, is to break that marriage, right? Now, here's the problem with this idea that divorce for any reason is sinful. If that is the case, how do you repent of it? If divorce for any reason is sinful, how do you repent? You have to be married again. Otherwise, you're living in sin and you can't go to heaven. And the problem with this idea that divorce for any cause is sinful is that it puts a person, a person's faithfulness 
at the behest of another individual. I cannot marry a person who will not marry me. And so if I have to repent of my sin of divorce, I have to be remarried to my first wife. If she will not take me, I am lost for all of eternity. And my faithfulness, my going to heaven, is dependent on the decision of another person, which is not in line with Scripture. Now, also, you have another problem. And that is, God never commands, God never endorses a sinful practice. Right? Shake your head like this. God will not command you or endorse your sinful practices. However, there are three instances in Scripture where God commands or endorses divorce. Number one is Hosea and Gomer in the book of Hosea. Number two is in 1 Corinthians when he says that if an unbelieving spouse wants to depart, then you let that unbelieving spouse depart and you are not under bondage, meaning you are not... Your marriage does not trump your faithfulness to God. You're not under bondage to your spouse. If the spouse leaves, I'm going to follow God instead of leaving with her. So if, if, for instance, Rebecca ever says, you have to stop going to church, you have to stop being a Christian, or I'm going to divorce you, then I have to say, I love you, goodbye. That is 1 Corinthians 7. God never endorses a sinful practice. If marriage in and of itself is sin, divorce, sorry, if divorce in and of itself is sinful, God has endorsed a sinful practice. He has commanded a sinful practice in Hosea. And most of all, I just want to read you one more verse. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8. This is, this is God speaking of Israel. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithful one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went, she too went and played. Number one, God commanded a divorce. Number two, God endorsed a divorce. Number three, God committed a divorce. If divorce in and of itself is sinful, then God cannot be God how it works. If divorce in and of itself is sinful, he has commanded it, he has practiced it, and he has endorsed sin. Number two, there is no way to repent of that sin outside of the decision of another free will person. My faithfulness, my going to heaven does not rely on any of y'all, even though I'm your preacher, right? Which I will be held accountable for everything y'all do, not because of what you do, but because of whether or not I gave you the impression that it was okay, right? What I say is what I will be held accountable for, not for your individual decisions. And it goes the same for elders and anyone else who is in in a leadership position in the church. So, is divorce for any cause sinful? No. Is divorce for some causes sinful? Yes, like the irreconcilable differences. That means, um, let me just put it bluntly, I've heard too many people over the years say, well, my first marriage just didn't work out. Marriages don't work out. 
people have to work in the marriage. And the fact is that, yes, divorce can be sinful if we just throw it away. Then it is on us. And it is our decision. We have decided to not play our role in our marriage, and then we will be held accountable for that. All right, last question. This one's a doozy, so you ready for this? This was asked by a person who is um, online, uh, who uh, asked this publicly, and and I thought it would be uh, interesting to talk about today. The amount of people who will be saved by Jesus is numerous, more numerous than the stars of the sky, Genesis 15.5, more numerous than the sand of the seashore, Genesis 22.17, and more numerous than the dust of the earth, Genesis 28.14. How then should we understand that Jesus meant when he said only few will find eternal life, Matthew 7.13-14? Why are preachers preaching a faithful few gospel instead of teaching the promise of the innumerable? So basically the question is this, why did God tell Abraham that his descendants in Genesis 15 and 22 and 28, would be more numerous than the stars and the sand and so forth when Jesus said that only few will inherit the kingdom of God. Well, here's the answer. Genesis chapter 15, verse 5. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven the number, and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to them, So shall your offspring be. Genesis twenty two seventeen. I will surely bless you. I will sh- surely multiply your offspring on the stars of the, as the stars of the heaven and the sand on the earth, seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Genesis twenty eight verse fourteen. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and sh- you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. The answer is. Abraham's promise was not of salvation. Abraham's promise that his offspring would be as numerous as the stars or the dust or the sand on the seashore were physical people. Now we are called in the New Testament as um, Abraham's offspring. It's because, not because of his faith, but because we have the same type of faith. We have an obedient faith. God did not promise that the people who go to heaven will be as numerous as the stars or as the dust or as the sand on the seashore. What he promised was people with the bloodline of Abraham would be. Raise your hand if you are of the physical bloodline of Abraham. No one knows. I don't know if I'm the physical bloodline of Abraham. I know I'm the physical bloodline of Rick and Pat or Annie. Y'all know her as Annie. We went to a funeral yesterday. Everybody called her Pat. It was so nice. She hates the name Pat. Anyways, I like giving my mom a hard time. I don't know if I'm of the physical bloodline of Abraham, but I know I'm of the spiritual bloodline of Abraham because I'm a Christian saved by grace in Jesus Christ. And so Galatians 3 and verse 29, if you are Christ, then are you Abraham's offspring's heirs according to the promise. Not the promise of Abraham, but the promise of salvation that was given to, well, to Adam and Eve, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Joseph, to every person in the Old Testament and every person in the New Testament. We are children of the promise because we have salvation. If you need to be a Christian this morning, you have the promise. You just have to access the promise through faithfulness like Abraham. You don't have to do the same thing as Abraham. 
Abraham had to pack up his stuff and leave. Abraham had to uh, circumcise his son. Abraham had to offer sacrifices. And all we have to do is obey the gospel of Jesus Christ and be baptized for the remission of your sins. And if you're ready to do that, we are ready to help you with that. We ask that you meet me down front here as together we stand and sing.